it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Hi, and welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek recap and ranking podcast. I'm Charlie Atheridge Nunn, a writer and an X-Men Legends 2 colon Rise of Apocalypse specifically on PSP fan. Hi, and I'm Marsby Lobato, science fiction writer and David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Dune fan, and F my good friend Andrew Worm ever hears this. Suck it, Worm. 1984 version of Dune is the best movie adaptation of Dune. Fight me. We've done this before. We will do this again. May your Chris knife chip and shatter. <laughs> I assume by by Worm he is uh, a relative of God Emperor. Uh, no, it's spelt W-U-R-M. But this is this is a long-standing feud he and I have pretty much now had for close on eighteen years. Wow. Um, whether or not the Dune David Lynch movie is any good, he says no, and I say, mm, okay, it is not a great adaptation of Dune. It's a terrible adaptation of Dune. But as a piece of cinema, once you've watched that film, you never forget it. I now have the Toto scored soundtrack on vinyl. So does does he prefer the sci-fi original version? He actually prefer we he actually um pref- I think now he prefers the, the recent part one of. Like the stro- the the thing was when this film was coming out, we made a pact when I, I told him I wouldn't believe this student movie was ever coming out until he and I were sitting in the cinema together to watch it. And we made good on that promise. We watched it together. The blood oath was fulfilled. Wow. Until part two comes out. So, Yeah. Welcome to Casual Dune. Um, Wait, no. Wrong podcast. Yes. Here on... um... (laughs) God, that'd be be horrible. Um... (laughs) Casual Dune would be horrible. Anyway, this is not this is not a Dune podcast. This is a Star Trek podcast. And each episode on this Star Trek podcast, we watch stories from three different Star Trek shows or films, and we rate them on a big list of best to worst. We both love Star Trek, and it's far from our first fandom, so this makes us the ultimate objective voices on such a task. And this week we're we're playing the synergy game here. We're we're finally, finally ripping the plaster off. We're going to watch the last Star Trek pilot episode that we haven't covered just in time for the release of Picard season three. Admittedly, a week later because it's scheduling, but you know, it's it's exciting, kind of. Have we finally sold out in? The name of branding and synergy. Yeah, this is now official Star Trek merch. We are officially part of the uh, the road card. Uh, so, um, Charlie, yes. what non Star Trek thing have you been consuming this week? 
I've been um, consuming not just this week, but what feels like so long, even though it's only been a recent discovery for me, the video game Vampire Survivors, specifically on the iPad. And it's so much fun. It's kind of like it's Castlevania themed kind of looking, but it's a, a reverse shoot 'em up. Interesting. Is it a kind of a linear platformer like the original Castlevania games? Or is it more of a Castlevania Symphony for the Night open world Super Metroid style game? Neither. It, you are a you're a person. Yeah, you're a, a person who like there are a few characters and tons of unlockable ones. And you wander around a top down kind of map. And uh, bats attack you initially, and you you have like your little man who has a Castlevania style whip, just whacking the bats. And then after you get some XP from killing them, you might level up your whip, and now you whip in two directions, left and right. Or you get another item like some Ooh. holy water, or a cross, or some garlic, keeping monsters away. And it's it's a really simple game because everything comes at you and you you auto-fire all of your weapons all at once. And watching how you level and evolve everything you do, it just it goes from spending a run of this game, which lasts like five minutes until you inevitably die at the hands of some giant praying mantis or something, to like, I am an explosion of light. And color and energy. There are all these things it going off around me. And I've unlocked a dog to play, and a bird, oh. and and a tree, which is incredibly slow, but radiates a field that destroys monsters around it. Well, to that I have to I have to quote uh, Treebit and all the rings and say, "Hum, from, 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 from." Right. Um. So. What non-Star Trek thing have I consumed this week? I am actually, right. at first, I am going to quickly plug something. Um, back in January, I recorded an episode of the podcast Breakfast in the Ruins, which is a Michael Moorcock-flavored podcast. I didn't actually appear on the episode to talk about Michael Moorcock, one of my favorite writers, but instead um, to talk about the novel The Dark, by 70s British schlockmeister James Herbert. Now, if you don't know James Herbert, the best way I can describe him, he's clearly one of the influences on the Garth Marenghi character. <laughs> um, a fun time was had, some much dark-themed alcohol was consumed, and the episode should be up for release by the time this episode goes out. Nice. I felt I had to plug it, and what non-Star Trek thing I have consumed, um, I have finally made progress in Elden Ring after okay. a year and restarting the game last weekend. I have been stuck on, I was stuck on Marjit the Fell for about a year. I restarted the game thinking, I think I missed something, got to where I was within about a day, and basically then got stuck again until Friday, when I finally did the several prerequisite 25 years worth of grinding 
it needs to get enough wounds to basically wail this fucker to death with my sword. So I have made progress, and I'm stuck again. Oh no, I saw your frustrated Facebook posts about this. Um, yeah, yeah, I I tried. I enjoyed Bloodborne out of all the Souls-likes um, for a bit, and I just, I couldn't hack it. I don't have the memory, the reaction time, or, or the literal time to get to get good the, at it. The only Souls, the only Souls-like game I've played before this one was Jedi Fallen Order for the PlayStation 4, mm. which I think is a much more fun and easier game than this is. This is this is insanely difficult. It looks beautiful, but the gameplay is easy, but actually playing the game is a nightmare. I really feel sorry for Rihanna, my wife, because she was watch she's been watching me this last week and she's been sitting on the sofa while I have been trying really hard not to put my controller through the TV and just going, Oh look, I died again in the same place. What fun! What fun! What larks we are having! What jolly japes! I um, one day I might go back to Bloodborne, but I'm I'm fine just sticking with Fire Emblem and Vampire Survivors and all of that. I'm I'm thinking of picking up the remake of Dead Space sometime mm. in the next few weeks. I've heard that's good, but eventually I have to get back to Disco Elysium and more yep. importantly, Doki Doki Literature Club. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, Emma was a massive fan of Doki Doki Literature Club, and like you, I've I really need to go back to Disco Elysium. It was very good fun. Yeah, it was a bit stressful some of the choices and some of the decision making, but in the in a good way. I it, I need to tell a quick story about my relationship with Doki Doki Literature Club because you've seen you've seen the photo. I didn't play the game until like last year. Yeah. But I have some friends who dress up as the Doki Doki Literature Club characters oh, God. Um, for conventions. And so when I found out that a friend of mine was going to be at the same convention, I said to them, okay, it's November, it's Nano Month. I want to take a photo with you with a sign saying worst NaNoWriMo group ever. <laughs> and my friend not only delivered, she got all the other people in the group who appear in the photo. So there is a photo out there, which I'll put, I'll probably put on the Twitter account, which mm. is me holding a sign saying worst NaNoWriMo group ever while surrounded by three of the four Doki Doki Literature Club ladies. Amazing. Right. I, I feel we've, we've done a good job in, in not talking about what we're talking about today. So we're doing our Picard Synergy episode, but we're recording it mere, what, God, less than 24 hours before the episode airs, uh, which is kicking off season three, as I believe it's... Is it really, is it? Yeah. It, wait, it, it, when does it air? 13th, I believe. Oh. Yeah. Oh, damn. Okay, I, I thought it was like close next weekend. All right. Alas, our, our fortnightly schedule means we will be a week afterwards. So, what's great about this? Our premieres. No, um, it premieres February the sixteenth. Oh, 
Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Not the Charlie. Charlie. Time loops were last episode. Okay. Well, it will have only just been out. Um. <laughs> anyway, I figured the audience will have seen the start of season three. We at this point in the time stream have not. So I figured we could have some baseless conjecture. And in fact, this whole episode's choices are themed around baseless conjecture based on the trailer for Picard season three, as it features a couple of um, infamous, I guess, Star Trek antagonists who, who will be popping up and obviously are central parts to this entire show. Yup. Um, should I should I tell them what episodes we are going with? Please. Uh, based on sheer conjecture from the trailer, we are featuring episodes featuring Professor James Moriarty, who is more of a Star Trek villain than he really is a Sherlock Holmes villain. But I can go on about my opinions on Moriarty within the wider Sherlockian canon all day, we then have Data Law, featuring Data's twin brother, played by Brent Spiner, who, I don't know about you, Charlie, I think he might be a wrong'un. Just slightly. Hang on, Brent Spiner or Law? Um, all of both. Okay, and then for our, And then, for our main event, we will finally be pulling the Picard plaster off and talking about the pilot episode of Picard Season 1, Remembrance. Yeah, yeah, it had to happen eventually. And why not do it for synergy? For synergy! Yes, on that note, um, yeah, we should probably crack on. Going in chronological order here, we have Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1. Lucky episode 13 titled Data Law. There is no data. There is law. There is baseless conjecture, which is the other sibling. Um, but yes, so this aired on the 18th of January 1988. Teleplay by Robert Lewin and someone called Gene Rodenbury. I've not heard of this man before. No, no, no. I'm sure he's a perfectly fine man with no weird sexual hang-ups. <laughs> that seems distressingly specific. And yeah, somehow we've not delved into them as much as you'd think in in these, what, 14 episodes now. Um, anyway, so they did the teleplay. The story was by Robert Lewin and Morris Hurley um, of Baywatch Nights fame. And this was directed by Rob Bowman, who is going to be more and more of a name Star Trek-wise from this point onwards in uh, in TNG history. Uh, we have a UK and US number one hit. We have Belinda Carlisle with Heaven is a Place on Earth from the UK, which is uh, a staple of, of wedding do's. It it does feel like any notable ones from this era is specifically because of that. Yeah. And, and then we have George Harrison, the handsome Beatle. Oh, my word. Yes. We've got my mind set on you, which 
Um, yeah, I I'd never really followed Harrison's post Beatles kind of stuff so much, and didn't realize this was him. All, all I know about Harrison's post Beatles career is um his stint in the best rock band on earth, the Traveling Wilburys, where he where it's he, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, and the guy from no no um Jeff Orbison and the guy from ELO. Wow. Who is doomed to forever be guy from ELO. Oh, good old ELO. Yeah, um, the video for this had a guy who I was sure was like a, a really young Alexis Denisov in it. Like, um, but it couldn't have been because of time, really. It just looked uncannily like him in places. Um, yeah, compared to a lot of the 80s-ish stuff, from from this sort of era of Star Trek, they're fine. These are both fine. It's fine. Yeah. So, um, Miles. It's Ed Sheeran. <sighs> yeah, well, we'll put a pin in that. Um, <laughs> anyway, I believe you are recapping Data Law. All right. So. Okay. You want to set the timer? Let's let's do this. Engage. The Enterprise is heading to the planet Sigma Omicron, um, the colony planet of a bunch of scientists where data was originally found. It turns out that this planet was devastated in some kind of freak accident, and only data survived with the memories of the 400 colonists implanted into his memory. Um, data... Riker and a bunch of others beam down to the planet, which looks like a soundstage made of cardboard. And for this Doctor Who, this Doctor Who fan is very happy because oh, if right. there's one thing I, love, it's a car, it's a cardboard planet with like a back, a clearly a velvet backdrop, some mood lighting. It's great. Um, they find a underground shelter with nobody in it. Uh, further investigation reveals a bunch of kids' drawings which all seem to feature a giant snowflake. Also, in a locker, they find a bunch of robot parts, which look suspiciously like data. They bring the parts on, they bring the bits on board, and they set about rebuilding the, um, the data-like android in asking for personal information on how to turn the robot on. Uh, data reveals to Dr. Beverly Crusher that there's actually a little alarm clock switch somewhere in his hip. Uh, Riker's first thought is to ask um, if the robot has a cock, although it's subtly impl- you know, it's more subtle implication because I think um, Riker is scared that anybody might be more functional than him in the role of a uh, ship's love machine. They construct the robot who looks and sounds exactly like Data, um, except for a few things. One, he can use contractions, which Data used contractions before in the show, but this is going to be a retcon. This is now a retcon, and now Data will never be able to use contractions. Also, the robot law has a very distinctive facial tick, which probably doesn't mean anything bad whatsoever. Law says that um. Data was actually built first, and he was a flawed model, and that Law, that's the robot's name, was actually built second. As Law acquaint, you know, 
acclimatizes to the ship. They teach him how to pilot the ship. And Wesley Crusher starts to notice a few odd things about Law, to which Law responds, I like you, Wesley. I think you'll be the last to die. This, again, is very subtle subtext. Uh, Data has cribbed to the fact that Law has lied about which robot came first, and Law admits that he was actually built first, and he was built to be perfect, but there's a kind of a uncanny valley effect to Law that he's too human, he's too human-like, and the colonists were freaked out and demanded that Dr. Noonien Sung, a name we're never gonna hear the end of, oh, yeah. um, basically built a much less, a much less human-like model, and that's how we got data. With more research, um, it turns out that actually the, the giant snowflake in the, in the pictures um, might actually be a great crystalline entity which devastated the planet. Promptly, Law knocks out Data, by not by using his alarm clock, but by, I don't know, he put something in a champagne and gave him the old Mickey Finn, and then promptly does the old switch switcheroo. But uh, after working, you know, working on Data's face, so Data now has the facial tick, and Law does not. Law comes onto the bridge, pretending to be Data, and the only person who notices is Wesley, who um, reacts to this in the least subtle way possible, and basically does the world's worst um, subtlety check, by basically saying, he's clearly the evil robot, why are we trusting him with anything? And that is where we now get the infamous Shut Up Wesley of Star Trek fame. Quick note, if you ever meet Will Wheaton in public, do not say Shut Up Wesley to him. He won't appreciate it for understandable, he won't appreciate it for understandable reasons. Um, Law, pretend to be Data, communicates with the great oh. crystalline entity. Oh... Oh, the great crystalline entity has said time is up. I mean, it's not got a mouth or anything, so you know. No, but it's a giant snow. It's it's a giant snowflake. So you know that any if it ever taught itself humanoid speech, it the first things it would say would be triggered libs. Wow. Or or some kind of other right wing uh, dog whistle. Of course. So anyway. So, uh, you got the stopwatch at? Yep. Oh, go. So, D- Law, pretending to be Data, goes to the um, cargo bay to beam it a tree in order to try and establish communication. Um, Wesley, again, is like, that's clearly the evil robot. If I was an adult, you people would actually listen to me. And Picard tells Beverly Crusher to take her son off the bridge. Wesley manages to persuade Crusher to go to Data's quarters to check on which robot is which, and they realize that, oh wait, that's actually Data um, dressed in Law's yellow mustard jumpsuit. Um, in the cargo bay, Law is preparing to lower the shield so the great crystalline entity can attack and destroy the crew of the ship, leaving Law alive. It turns out that Law made contact with the great crystalline entity um, and gave, and let them kill all the colonists and devastate the planet for reasons. Uh, He's evil. Just for the lulls. 
just for the lols. Data, Beverly Crusher, and Wesley leap on to the cargo bay to stop Law and immediately bottle it when Law pulls out a phaser and threatens to kill Wesley Crusher and tells um, Beverly to you know to leave, otherwise he'll shoot the boy. Wesley leaves and um, sorry, Beverly leaves and Law promptly shoots her. In the shoulder, setting her coat on fire, which was kind of cool, actually. Oh my god, it was cool. And horrifying. Just, yeah, like, burn the doctor there. Always love a good guy on fire um, stunt gag. Mm-hmm. Um, Data and Law get into a fight, but since they're both wearing different clothes, we don't get the quintessential um, Star Trek cliche of, of someone saying to shoot us both, and that's how you know which one is the good double, and uh, Data yeets Law onto the large teleporter in the cargo bay, and Wesley beams, I'm assuming beams Law into space. We don't see where Law beams up to, and the crystalline entity realizes, well, um, guess my plan's scarpered, and promptly bollocks off. Uh, Picard and Riker come down to the cargo bay, and um, Picard begrudgingly apologizes to treating Wesley a bit like shit. And, yeah, um, Data's Data's fine with having uh, lost, gained and lost the brother, and the Enterprise flies off, and at no point do we see Law kind of drifting in space, because that'd be kind of funny if, like, you know, you get the, the closing shot of the Enterprise, and you just see Law drift past the camera like he's the space core in Portal 2. The end. <laughs> Well, that's three minutes and eleven seconds over there. Not and the best. That's all right. That's all right. We um, yeah, we had a slight communication um issue where neither of us really studied for data law. Both we watch all of the episodes, but uh, yeah, we we both decided to do elementary dear data. Which, yeah, it's definitely a good one with um, what you did with Data Law. It's it's a nice, simple kind of plot with um, the whole... I was going to say Boy Who Cried Wolf, but no, people just expect Wesley to be wrong automatically. And understandably so. Yeah, you, you kind of feel bad for... Um... Will for Will Reaton, who basically has to play like the world's most annoying um teenage SWAT. Yeah. Um it's the same problem that they have with Adric in Classic Who, in which you have your young boy protagonist your young boy protagonist basically be an obnoxious know it all and never really give him any actual kind of decent edge or treat him like a real teenager. And so he's just like Someone you instinctively just want to tell to shut up. Yeah. Which is a shame. And um, Picard follows Um, his heart. But yeah. Picard follows his heart to get one of the more memorable gifts from the show. I was just... Okay. When you were watching the show, um, were you thinking that if they had done this exact storyline in like a modern TV show, that we would have lore for like two to three episodes before we find out he's a villain? God, probably actually in Discovery. We it would be probably stretched out. Yeah, 
it's like, and then in this one, it's like, yeah, they spend 15, 20 minutes finding and building lore. And within two minutes, you're like, yeah, he's evil. He, he's the evil oh. brother. Guy opens his eyes and you can see he's got that kind of, I'm a piece of shit looking grin on his face. Like, he is a wrong and from the get go. <laughs> the distinct twitch, like that kind of a, you know, then the next most telling evil um code they could have given him was it turned out they built the android to have a hunched back or an eye patch or or an eye patch or two eye patches like yes. one on each eye <laughs> yes i was for perfect droid with my two patches <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah it's um law felt very much programmed for comedic evil that no one mm. noticed and was immediately, hey, here are the flight codes, here's how we do everything. I, you'd think that people would learn maybe don't do that to, to anyone just automatically, even if they say that they're your robot brother. Wouldn't it be funny if it turned out that Lord just had a switch on his back which has had good evil settings, and it just accidentally got nudged into the evil setting. Well, maybe it's on the other hip. You know, this one's on off, this one's good evil. I had a realization um, from watching this episode last night. Hmm. The world of Star Trek doesn't really have robots. By that, I mean, like, like drones. Like, drones... Um, or the kind of things that we have in the day, say, where like we have drones, we have bomb disposal robots. They never robots, with the exception of Data and the odd evil android they have in the classic show. They robots always seems to be like a science fiction trope that Star Trek kind of keeps away from. Like I mean, not even like would would things I, like peanut handpick down. The, the the exocomp the that's, that's like, I I kind of I guess I mean more in the kind of like the more quintessential like golden age kind of Robbie the robot yeah or the robot from Lost in Space you'd think that they would have those kind of machines if only in a kind of like a service capacity hmm you've got things like the grain silo robots like the the grain silo drone ships. I guess in in the yeah. Trouble with Tribbles sequel, would that count, or are we are we talking humanoid ish? I, I I'm kind of talking humanoid ish because that that always seems to be like a it Star Trek doesn't have droids. Hmm. Like, like you know, I and I I don't know if it was that like logistical because they didn't want it to look kind of campy like Lost in Space or Forbidden Planet does. Or if there's, like, an actual kind of, like, deep lore reason for the same reason why they don't have robots in the Dune universe, in which is because um, artificial intelligences were destroyed in a great um, religious uprising against um, artificial intelligence. Hmm. It's, it's like, data is something purely unique. In the world of the Federation, which is he is the only robot type robot. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and definitely one I'll be 
keeping an eye out on the original series because if any of the series, any of the shows did it, I would imagine it would be that. Next gen onwards, you don't want you don't want anything that could be mistaken for C three PO. Yeah, and canonically, I guess like if you take it his in the historical order, you get a lot of enhanced humans and cyborg mm. kind of people and stuff like that. So maybe maybe they just don't feel an, a need for one to either have enhanced people or stuff like your exocomps or your cleaning droids, your kind of like yeah. flying drone things and all that. So there's not really a a, a space for Robbie the robot. Is this the part where I just I kind of just very smugly say, Doctor Who had robots, mm. even it's before true. even before K nine with the robot dog. Um, I this is going to be a side note. I really like the music in this episode. Like, mm. Star, I don't know, like Star Trek. <laughs> I I feel like from the first season episodes we watched. There is definitely more of an attempt to do more kind of musical soundscapes and then just having, you know, here is the, here is the suspense chord. Here is the action chord. And this is definitely like, yeah, we're just gonna, we're just gonna wail on the synthesizers, maybe stick in some pheromones. Like there's, there's definitely more of a musical edge to this episode. And I was here for it. I have to admit, I didn't click. Any of that, music-wise. Um, God. It's one of those things where I feel almost like I need to go back and see, you know, musically what it was doing. Because, yeah, I I just didn't notice. Um, and that's going to be more on me than on, on the show, uh, really. Yeah. It was interesting seeing Data as a brother and is a complete piece of shit. Um, I... Yep. Law's one of those characters that I felt the more that he came back and did stuff, the more diminishing returns it was. You know, in this one, he is yeah. he is worrying. He has the trust, the unearned trust of too many people. And the, that one child who no one really cares for is uh, is the one who, who knows something's up. And he's, he's not even good at squealing on him. I, I thought there was going to be a moment when they did twig that that it was the wrong robot when Law calls Riker Riker instead of his rank and he didn't understand what Picard meant by make it so. But he's just like, no, no, um, we're just going to be really stupid here yeah. and not acknowledge. It's been so long since I've seen this episode. I, I did have that moment of, is it going to be like... Um... The um, magic to make the sanest man go mad and go like, okay, the bridge crew have been briefed. They are aware of yeah. these shenanigans. They can tell. So yeah, as you say, he like Law keeps fucking up. Uh, I know this is year one of the mission for this configuration of the crew. So they're not all used to Data's foibles, and you know, it, again, some like the contractions get retconned in, but. Um, yeah, you'd hope that people would notice. But yeah, um, do you have anything else to say about this episode? 
Not really. Uh, I like I like the crystalline entity as a, a malevolent force, and I love that the more we watch these Star Trek episodes, the more space is just full of shit like that. Like, there are so many malevolent, unknowable entities out there. It's it's kind of great. I, I saw this great um, article on Tor.com this week because it had a week dedicated to space opera. And they had an article which basically said, space is terrifying, actually. And I was like, yes, finally, someone else understands. Um, because, yeah, space is huge, vast, and it's terrifying. And these people are on a ship which gets attacked on a very frighteningly regular basis. You, you think more people would be scared to live in space. You would, wouldn't you? <laughs> um... Like, you know... You're in a you're in a tin can in space. Something's gonna try and do you. I mean that's that is entirely why Riker's there. Um although uh, that's in a true. different way. Did you catch uh law, um data um calling out Picard on Law's pronouns? Oh. When when because Picard refers to Law when he's talking to Data as an it, it's and yeah. Picard, and Data goes I I it as well and it's like Oh man! If this episode got if this episode got aired this year, you would have angry guys on Twitter going, "Ah, Star Trek implied pronouns! I am angry at this for no good rational reason. I hate pronouns." Oh god! Ah, oh, such doofuses. Um, yep. right. Well, this pair of doofuses. Um, are gonna have to work out where on our big list of best to worst. Data law is going to be, and that list is ever growing. At the moment, our number one spot is yep. still occupied by Deep Space Nine's pilot episode Emissary. Our halfway point at seventeen is um, a good Enterprise episode with the Andorian incident. I will stop sounding surprised by that one day. Today is not that day, it, and finally. <laughs> It did, it did. Oddswise, it had to happen eventually. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, the worst spot is also occupied by an Enterprise episode, this time Future Tense, and, yeah, uh, a whole lot of nothing, and some some poor Doctor Who references, and un- undercooked time loop stuff. Um, so... Data law. It's, to be honest, last time I revisited season one of Next Generation, I gave up partway through because there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of it doesn't know what it's doing and not in a charming way, like the conscience of the king in the original series, but in a in an ugly way, um, like Code of Honor. When I tried to rewatch... Um next gen during covid because i think so many people started rewatching track during covid yeah um i think i got i think i got about a few episodes before skin of evil in my rewatch and i kind of like the very weird um next gen where it doesn't really know what it's doing and mm. it's just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks um as i've said like next gen 
wasn't my favorite of the Trek shows because it just it does feel in places the very safe kind of not there is like there is no continuation the characters feel like action figures of themselves um whereas i kind of like the weird the weirder tone when they're still trying to work out what star trek's going to be for the 80s and 90s and i feel it's still kind of learning and i kind of like watching it when it's learning because i enjoy seeing will it go weird will it go how it's gonna, how Trek is gonna go. Will it have the guy from Fleetwood Mac in a giant fish head? I want more of the guy from Fleetwood Mac in a giant fish head. It's, yeah, it definitely has some hits and some misses. And where it hits, it's still, it's pretty good. And this, yeah, like one of the better season one TNG episodes for me. All right, so let's have a look. Okay. Um, is it better than Genesis? Oh, I, I don't think so. To be honest, Genesis has a Ooh. lot of fun and a lot of spooky stuff going on. It's like it it looks interesting as well, uh, which you know this this is fine. It's got some good tension. Um, I like that as a point of comparison because both have those those good dark elements for kind of, you know, not quite horror, but, you know, oh my God, Data's been replaced and it's been switched off. Oh, how's he going to get out of this one? Um, but yeah, personally, if I'm given a choice, I would prefer Barkley as a, as a spider. A spider. And Worf clearly killing someone. Yes, yeah, Worf definitely murdering someone. <laughs> Alright, um... Mm. Okay, next question. Is it better or worse than Riker's Klingon work experience with Amash Honor at number 19? Oh, shit. Oh. Oh, dear. Like, for drama... There's better drama in, in Data Lore. I I kind of like the mundanity of bacteria being a problem and Riker having to navigate his way through a, a Klingon cultural exchange. How about you? What do you make of, of that comparison? I, I think in some ways this is a better, but also I it doesn't feel as polished as A Matter of Honor does. I guess the other thing is for the cultural relevance of introducing law, introducing the Noonian Singh dynasty and all that comes with that in the future. It's like, you know, it, it, it comes down to like, you know, if you were going to watch an episode of Star Trek in the next mm. generation and your choice was a matter of honor or data law, which would you want to sit down with a beer and watch? Or a cup of tea. God, that is a difficult one. Like, both occupy that same sort of space for me. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it might end up being data law, to be honest. Like, it's it's a... Like, Matter of Honor is good, but, like, mm. you know, well, I could probably watch data law, like, within, again. Yeah. And I, I watched it, like, 24 hours prior to recording. And, like, yeah, it... 
it has it has some fun it has some fun into play. Um, I love the the cardboard set. Love that um, planet. Set. I like that so nice. Love that planet set. I I think I actually saw this one when it when it first aired on BBC Two, and I do remember that I, that the planet has always kind of stuck with me, and like the kids' drawings of the great crystalline entity. Mm. So I I I might have to say this is probably a best in a matter of honor. I think it's probably better than the next one. That's Discoveries Through the Valley of Shadows, which has some fun elements of it. I think this might be better than the Andorian incident. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I, as much as I love Jeffrey Combs in that, I think that's that's a valid shout. I, I really don't want to be mean to... The one good episode of Enterprise we have high enough on the list that it's not, you know, skulking around the bottom slots. It's fine. But there might yeah, be more. I think there, there, there has to be more. So Enterprise, um, the Andorian incident gets demoted from number seventeen down to number eighteen, and that is our first Picard synergy. I guess technically Picard trailer synergy because they law could appear for. Five minutes or something in the entire yeah that's for fun of doing this a few days early law turns up and immediately gets beamed out into space again oh that'd be great no fuck off there you go space Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay good so of all things normally we cover three separate shows but next up we have another Star Trek Next Generation episode. And this one is Season 2, Episode 3, with Elementary Dear Data. This aired on the 5th of December 1988. This was written by Brian Allen Lane and directed once again by Rob Bowman. And the UK and US number one hits for UK had Robin Beck with First Time. I have no memory of this at all it's fine it's like you know there are so many songs which are just like yeah it's it's fine yeah and then yeah the u.s had willed power with baby i love your way slash free bird which um yeah again like i i recognize this one at least but it's uh, i don't know i when i existed in 1988 i guess i was still listening to uh talking heads on my dad's side and like beatles and floyds on my mum's so there were yeah i didn't really get this side of pop no it's interesting to experience and yeah hopefully it it hasn't busted the algorithm so it recommends me more of it right i i read too as beast once said in issue one of x-men to quote the vernacular of rock and roll Wow. I always remember that because it's on one of his trading cards in the 90s, and it's just kind of fun to um to read the trading cards for 90s Beast and go, what would his quote be on, on a 2023 trading card? Ooh, time for war crimes. <laughs> yes, of course, if you forget about morality for a moment, I could, you know, harvest these child organs for a more efficient train system or something. I don't know. Beast... Beast would hand over mutants to the great crystalline entity. 
Oh god, he would be all up in that crystalline entity. He, he, he yep. Anyway, all right. Uh, this is not, but this is not a beast from the X Men. Is a this is a Star Trek podcast, honest and time set and engage. Uh, the Enterprise has shown up early to meet up with the USS Victory because they're a big bunch of SWATs. This means they've got some downtime. Data pops down to engineering and LaForge shows off a, no- a lovely model ship that is made by hand as a gift to the Victory. What a suck up. Still, the main thing here is Data doesn't understand the joy in manually building something rather than simply replicating it. Well, Put a pin in that so it'll be relevant soon. LaForge says, I've done this for me, for you. Let's go play Sherlock Holmes. This has always been a dream of Data's, apparently. So how exciting. Uh, they go off to the holodeck. And I love the idea that anyone playing on the holodeck has the traips around the entire ship in costume for whatever they're doing in there. Data is dressed up as Sherlock Holmes. LaForge is Watson. And even though he did this for Data, he's less aware of the whole Sherlock Holmes works, um, just that his BFF loves it. So he lets Data fanboy over the place in 221B Baker Street and uh, does a suitable job of narrating Sherlock's life. That doesn't last for too long, though, as Lestrade shows up in a tizzy as a gentleman accosted by some travelers and we won't be using the g word here on casual track uh data immediately debunks the case says oh no this guy himself is dodgy and laforge is very upset but data's just speed running sherlock holmes he quits all this leaves and in 10 forward dr pulaski overhears some bitching about data and she loves this idea she really has it in for him she suggests the potential for failure is is a good thing that's kind of missing in all this. And Data is just like an AI artist. He pulls in existing information rather than coming up with any conclusions on his own. Ouch! Big yep. slam on Data. So, uh, a wager you... is made. Char- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hey, it's not me, it's Pulaski. Uh, anyway, there's a challenge to... Oh, um making that episode, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, a wager's made about getting the holodeck to make a scenario that will actually challenge him this time. Um, and Pulaski's going to come along to watch it all go to hell and experience a holodeck for the first time. Um, as soon as they go in to holodeck London, there's an urchin thief running off, and Data immediately goes, "No, that's a ruse." This guy going for redheaded league is going to get the old doorbell snake trap. Pulaski immediately calls out his fraud and goes, look, this is just AI versus AI. Neither of them can make anything original. And um, they call up the holodeck's arch while arguing, and a shadowy NPC in this scenario appears to have noticed it. Oh dear. LaForge asks to make an adversary capable of defeating Data. As soon as that's said, there's a surge on the Enterprise for a moment. Oh dear, the computer's up to something a bit bad. When everyone's gone, the NPC that's noticed the arch realises he can summon it as well. That's probably bad. And um, and while this is going on, Data and LaForge 
wander the streets looking for mi- a mystery. Pulaski roams loose, curious about everything, poking and prodding it all, because, again, first holodeck experience. Then there's a scream in the distance. Oh my god, Pulaski's been abducted. The game is afoot, and hopefully a human being isn't going to die. But we'll see. Uh, Data and LaForge follow some footfalls only to find a dead end. And Lestrade pops up going, hey guys, there's been a murder to distract you with. Data is not sympathetic about this at all. He could be busy doing other things. And the murder is unrelated. He solves it immediately and spots the mysterious villain sneaky away. He realizes the computer's acting on its own. All of this is made up and is so excited. Especially because this guy is going to be his nemesis. It's going to be Moriarty. Oh, yes. That's all well and good. But in searching for him, he finds yet another dead end. Uh, luckily, the pair pass their detect hidden doors check and find Moriarty's hidden lair. When they're in there, they see not only is he aware of the arch, he also hands a concerning sketch over. No, no, oh. no, no. Oh, dear. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. Um, before I start the timer, I'm going to be a complete nerd here. Um, the Redheaded League is from the story, The Redheaded League. Yeah. The, um, the pull cord, which releases a fucking snake, is from the Speckled Band. And the whole, that is, while the scandal in Bohemia does concern a stolen photograph, that is not how a scandal in Bohemia goes. See, again, I, I call see, yeah, this is exactly what Pulaski says. This is just the AI like, pulling extant data. Um, but yeah, even when doing the story of a scandal in Bohemia, that's not how the story of a scandal in Bohemia goes. There yeah. are no tra- there are no accosted by travelers. Mm. Anyway, this is not a Sherlock Holmes podcast. This is a Charlie, you bitch podcast. I still think we need to make that the title, or I want alternate title art for this episode, so I could put that on the on the Twitter, which is the, the title card, which just says "Charlie, you bitch." Anyway, this is not a Charlie, you bitch podcast. I mean, it is, but you know, I'm starting the timer now. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, this concerning uh, sketch gets handed over uh, to our guys. They leave the hollow deck. Data tries to deactivate the program, but he can't. Oh, no. And we see what the sketch is of. It's of the Enterprise. <gasps> wow. It's it's time to call a team meeting because this holodeck scenario is gone awry, as so many are want to do. Um, in the ready room, LaForge ex- explains what went on and that he's accidentally overridden the holodeck and the computer. And his wording of a foe to defeat Data, not a foe to defeat Holmes, looks like that was the problem here. So, it's time to get JL involved. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, in the simulation, uh, Pulaski is having tea and scones with Moriarty because he may be a villain, but he's a civilised villain. And I can appreciate that in villains. Yeah, it's it's what, what you want in a nemesis. So yeah, he obviously yeah. fancies her a bit and doesn't know what to do with his new awareness. He wants to lure in Picard, and luckily that is exactly what Picard's doing. So, P- 
Picard uh, and, and Data pair up. They enter hologram London, which is beginning to glow weirdly. And I like the dissonance of the glowy holodeck bars on Victorian London walls there. Picard and Moriarty meet and have a clash of minds and a kind of fairly decent chat. Moriarty just wants to exist. He knows he's made of energy. He knows he's going to get erased reboot style when they close the program. And Picard says, look, we will save you. We'll literally click save, store you somewhere in a nice folder away from all of this, and we'll work out what to do to get you back out. And then, like Professor Charles Xavier, also played by Patrick Stewart, he deals with his problems the exact same way. He closes everything down, goes about his life and thinks not a jot about this poor entity's life. Leaves him in a folder somewhere to rot and calls it a day. Well done. We get a nice little thing at the end with LaForge who's broken his little ship in all of the rumblings of what was going on when the holodeck was um, overriding the ship itself. And uh, never mind, he'll fix it soon, which is good because the real USS Victory has shown up the end. Two minutes, 53 seconds. Oh my god, I thought I would have gone way over. I mean, I did. No. But... Yeah. I I have some trivia notes. Oh, yes? Yes. Um, They thought that Sherlock Holmes was public domain. <laughs> oh, and no. went and turned He's not, so they had to pay. They had to pay out, which is probably why they don't use Moriarty again until later on. So maybe they were planning to have Moriarty be like a recurring thing. Uh, two, the original ending was going to have Picard literally trick Moriarty into stepping outside the holodeck, where he would promptly cease to exist. But they felt that it would make um, Picard seem uh, too duplicitous. So we have uh, we have the happy we have the the happy ending um, uh, where he said he gets he gets fire saved. Did Picard already do this, or with Dixon Hill, or does that come later? Because the bad guy from Dixon Hill does that. That was season one. That episode with the the film noir. Yeah. Um. That. Um. But Gene Roddenberry wanted it changed, so they changed it to the ending they they had now. Um, this is where I'm going to be um, my Sherlock Holmes pedant. Mm-hmm. James Moriarty is not a proper villain. He is a plot device only created because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had gotten fed up of writing Sherlock Holmes stories and wanted to write quote-unquote serious literature. So he basically created the ultimate villain um so holmes's death would feel like a worthy sacrifice and not he gets shanked in the back by like an aristocrat and he's basically been built up through lots and lots of pastiches and really bad films to where he's essentially um sherlock holmes's um joker yeah and not like sherlock holmes's Random villain. I mean, the same with the importance that um, Irene Adler was given, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep. Irene Adler only appears in one story. Moriarty appears in one, 
actually doesn't even i don't think he even appears i think he's just mentioned i can't remember f watson actually meets moriarty in um the final problem which is the story where sherlock holmes originally dies until he gets better the guy who's playing moriarty is great in this oh he is very good fun he is he doesn't look like how i imagine Moriarty, I, I kind of base how Moriarty looks from how he appears in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic, <laughs> and I think that's how he's meant to look as he's referenced in the stories, instead of a very, very kind of dashing, um, 80s-haired villain. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it, the guy was good as Moriarty, I liked that ultimately it wasn't a case of we must best him. But this is a problem. We've accidentally made life, and and we need to fix that. I admit, I was kind of disappointed in that, because the whole issue of whether or not Data has the intuition to be able to solve a home-style mystery without having to call on his home's fanboy knowledge. Hmm. Because essentially, Dr. Pulaski is... How the episode concludes, Dr. Pulaski is right. Because Data doesn't, because Data fails. And you'd think we would never hear the end of it. But the moment that Picard gets pulled into the story, 20 minutes in, it then becomes a Jean-Luc Picard versus Moriarty in a battle of wits. And I kind of felt that doesn't really fit with the first half of the story. It felt like a shame. It felt like um, the Thor, actually, which goes from a Bilana Kim episode to a, a Janeway episode. And I like I like the Forge. He's one of my favourites with TNG, and he vanishes halfway through the episode and doesn't really get anything to do once he has to get in touch with, you know, the higher ups and go, I've goofed, I've accidentally made life, the holodeck's gone rogue yep. again. You know, I mean everyone's had to admit it to to Jean Luc at some point. But yeah, it's Yeah, you know. It's an odd one for that. I guess the thought was it's going to have to be Jean-Luc versus Moriarty, given the perceived villainness yeah. of Moriarty. But yeah, Data, like, I'd say rather than being completely defeated, it's just a, a DNF. Like, didn't finish, didn't complete it. It's still up in the air whether he is or isn't, because from what I remember of season two, it's it's a big factor between Data and Pulaski for back and forth. Is he a real boy? Is he just a machine kind of thing? So conclusively answering it in episode three of that season probably wasn't on the cards. Yeah. At the same time, Pulaski seems to have no qualms about being charmed by Moriarty. Yeah. Even, you know, but like he he clearly looks real, but it's just like your your artificial intelligence who's just pretending to be a fictional character. What makes um what makes Moriarty any different from from Data? Mm. But apparently he somehow has sentience where Data does not, or it or or sentience without like okay sentience. Data has sentience but no emotion, even though. He clearly has emotion in this episode because oh, he is very excited to be touching all of Sherlock's thing. That room is way too clean to be Sherlock Holmes's <laughs> room in two two one B Baker Street. There is 
There is no knife attached to the wall. There is no coal. There is no slipper where Holmes keeps his tobacco. And I, I could go on all day. Yeah, the drugs aren't there. Yeah, the the cocaine the cocaine is not there. It's admittedly, I love Data and the Forge getting into character. Yes, it's um, like Data kind of going. He's going full Jeremy Brett. In he is in this, dis- despite again, like with the building of the ship, not clicking that. Like he likes, he wants the idea of playing. Sherlock Holmes. He hasn't yeah. figured out you need to actually do the playing. You know, you need to actually take part rather than go, oh, here's the solution, solved it. It's the difference between a written like a written story and like playing, you know, playing a game. In the story, in the stories, Holmes is ever only ever gonna be as intelligent and as clever as the writer makes him. Whereas if you're playing a game, you have you know, you're you're a you're a GM. Like it, you know, like the success or fail of a campaign is really going to depend on how well the game is played and how dumb your players are. I mean, like the dumb thing is is an interesting one these days. Like, I, I feel I, I, I'm being a bit disingenuous of that with my use of the word dumb. Yeah, yeah, the glorious chaos they bring can be very good fun. I, I, I love how. I love how Data is railroading the, the campaign oh. um, in the second half. It's like, Lestrade turns up, there's been a murder, and Data's like, he, he he's doing a player railroad because like Lestrade is clearly the DM going, okay, can you get back on track? Get back on track. And Data's like, nope, don't care. Dead. What a shame. Over here now. Yeah, yeah, that thing of, no, no, we've hyperfixated on this other thing. So that's what the campaign is now. I, the plot? Nah. Nah, mate. I, I do love that. Nah. I, I love how LaForge is playing um, Watson as written and not stupid. Because mm. he, he gets into it. He's like, hmm, I think this man has been, I think this man has been strangled from behind for these reasons. At no point is he playing dumb Watson. I mean, he's still not right in his, in his diagnosis. Uh, with no murdered, but you know he gives it a good go for someone that's apparently not all too familiar. I I I like I, I will say the plot that the computer with the the dead body and like the guy was strangled by the very evident sex worker with the necklace hmm. that was clever. I think that could be a very decent Holmes esque mystery in its own right. Although Holmes Holmes never wanders London. Looking for trouble. No, like Holmes sits in it. Holmes sits in his room, waiting for people to come to him. Holmes does not go out on patrol like he's Victorian Batman. That did feel very much like their kind of. We need for plot hooks. In theory, this could throw us anything. So we got no. We got nothing. Let's just go here and hope for the best. Do you feel disappointed that in, you know in the big deal they make of Worf getting into a suit that they don't show off Worf's Klingon suited swagger in Victorian London? I was very disappointed. Uh, I was like, yes, okay. I forgot Worf was in this in costume. It's like, no, no, he's he's not going to no, do anything. I, I love that Riker compliments Worf on the suit, and he's like, thanks. I. Worf never kind of gets me deadpan snarky. He he's always just too serious. So 
the little moments where he clearly has like a very subtle sense of humor, I kind of live for. Yes. Yeah, I kind of Yeah, more of that really from Wolf would be good. So, as a um loyalty to Sherlock Holmes, it will be first and last on the list. Um but on the big Star Trek list that we have, where do you think this goes, Charlie? Oh, I mean it's a it's another fun one. And I remember season two being again similarly shaky to, to season one, but for different reasons, really, with it. So I mean Is it is it better than Genesis? It might be. I I'm gonna say yes. Yeah. Um it's like, you know, I, I can watch I can watch um Data and LaForge just bumble around um, Victorian London like a couple of bumbling doofuses all oh, it's day. Oh, joy. Like, those two getting into scrapes, Moriarty realising he can see the arch, and and the existential weirdness of that. Although he sees the arch before he's given the sentience to be able to interact mm. with the arch. That's a bit of a plot, that's a bit of a, like a plot hole because I don't think the holodeck characters, yeah. I don't think for the most part holodeckers are aware of the fact that they're in a simulation. So that happens a bit too quickly, a bit earlier than planned. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things that I could probably no prize away, you know, and just forgive and go, okay, yeah. you know, maybe he was just more fixated on on them and their weirdness in the middle of the street or anything like that. Mm. But yeah, okay, so Beth and Genesis. Um, better than Genesis. Okay. I mean, it's not better than Cause and Effect, which is our, our highest TNG. No. Up in number three. I, I don't think this is in the 11 to 15 range. So what, between crossover and where Pleasant Fountains like, lie? I think better than Pleasant yes. Fountains, as fun as that was. Yeah. Mm. I don't think it's as... Mm. Do you think it's better than Crossover, which is number 11, and that's the episode where Odo fucking explodes? And this one doesn't have Odo fucking exploding in it. That's a problem. No, um, but, no but it have Picard doing a very nifty trick with a topper. This is true. When he, yeah. when he makes the top, like that, that was, um, I, I wonder if that's a Patrick Stewart going, ah, I'm English. I know how top hats work. And just kind of throwing in Patrick Stewart looks amazing mm. in the Victorian suit. Like he, he looks fantastic dressed to the nines. Definitely. I think they're strangely comparable. Actually, crossover and and um, elementary dear data with seeing familiar people slightly, you know, in a different environment, in a different world. But mm. I think, yeah, I think elementary dear data might just be more fun. Yeah, which is a, a shame because I think crossover has kept its spot for a while. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's move that down in the new number 11. We have elementary data. Right. Well, we've done two 
TNG episodes, and that means it's time for the big event. It's time to finally, finally watch the pilot episode for Picard. It's This is one of the ones I knew was going to be a difficult one when we were talking about covering all of all of Star Trek um, between the very serialized nature of it and just not really caring for it. Uh, so the good news for me is that um, you drew the short straw on this one. Um, so I'll run us through the details and then my good friend Miles, it's, it's going to be your time to recap. So this episode is season one, episode one, titled Remembrance, which aired on the 23rd of January, 2020. The teleplay was by Akiva Goldsman and James Duff. Story by Akiva... Akiva? I'm not sure now. Uh, Goldsman... I, 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 I put Akiva, but there we go. Yeah, Akiva Goldsman, Michael Shabon... Shabon? Again, I should actually... Shabon. Yeah, uh, Kirsten Beyer, Alex Kurtzman, and James Duff. And you know it's a good one when you have to have five people handling the story. And then it was also directed by Hanel M. Culpepper. The UK number one hit was Stormzy, featuring, among others, friend of the pod, Ed Sheeran. <laughs> and, <laughs> and own it. And the US hit was Roddy Rich with The Box. Um, these two made me feel like an old man. They're, they're fine. Like, you know, it's it's not my kind of music, but like, yeah. Yeah, they're probably fine for for the folks who, for the young'uns who like this sort of thing. Yeah, I'd heard people praising Stormzy before, but never bothered listening to any of his stuff. And sure. Fine. Um, how dare you bring Ed Sheeran back into this podcast, Mr. Stormzy? But uh, Ed Sheeran is following us like a great crystalline entity. He is. Oh my God! Now the I want someone with Ed Sheeran. Oh, the, the great crystalline <laughs> entity. Um, I need someone that's good at doing art to make that now. This one is this Photoshop, um, like the Enterprise View screen. But there's a, like, Ed Sheeran flying through space. I, I don't know if it's, like, a full-bodied Ed Sheeran, or it's just Ed Sheeran's head. Like, Ed Sheeran is the Doctor in, a, in an opening sequence for Doctor Who, whichever. Oh, Hello. God. Ed Sheeran is the Doctor. <laughs> so, welcome back. Um, turns out that if we mock Ed Sheeran too much... Um, the great Ed Sheeran entity comes down from sp subspace and screws up the recording. So um, we we beg forgiveness, oh magnificent Ed of Sheeran. Don't 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 hurt us. We are but humble podcasters who don't make as much money as you do for your maudlin James Blunt esque babble. Ed Sheeran, you. <laughs> oh, I see. So he's for bitch now, not me. Okay, good. Yeah. Do Do you want to write an episode card titled Ed Sheeran? You bitch. I mean, I, I probably will. 
I don't know. I normally make them as I'm listening to uh, and editing this. So hopefully future me will. Right. So, right. Let's uh, let's get the synop- let's get- set the timer. Yep. Are you ready to Picard? I am always always ready to Picard. Engage. On 10 forward on the USS Enterprise, Data and Picard play poker. Picard doesn't want the game to end. Hmm. I wonder why that is. We see them orbiting Mars, and then the planet is rocked by a bunch of explosions. <gasps> it was all a dream. Picard wakes up on his chateau in France. He has retired from Starfleet and now grows wine and drinks the day away with his doggy, as his household is maintained by two Romulans, Laris and Zaban. Meanwhile, in Greater Boston, a young woman named Darge and her boyfriend uh, drink and celebrate her getting into the Daystrom Institute of Artificial Intelligence slash computer slash robotics. A collection of masked assassins transport in and they kill Darge's boyfriend and they try and incapacitate her before she awakens, and that's the term they use. Suddenly, Darge turns into a killing machine and kills most of her attackers and flees. Meanwhile, Picard is being interviewed by at his estate by the Federation News Network. Ten years ago, there was a supernova which destroyed um, the Romulan homeworld and a good chunk of their territory, and forcing them to evacuate. Uh, Picard was the instigator of a great relocation effort of the Romulan people, despite the Federation's misgivings of aiding its oldest and most deadliest enemies. He undertakes this grand um, undertaking to the Dunkirk evacuations of World War II. The relocation effort was thwarted when a group of synthetic androids went rogue and set a, set a course a huge destruction of the Martian construction shipyards, which were building fresh ships for to help with the relocation. And this caused a ban on synthetic life forms in Starfleet. And Starfleet kind of pulled out of the whole relocation effort and you know, withdrawing from the galaxy, whatever that means, and Picard losing faith in Starfleet, um, resigned. The interview doesn't go well, as Picard just starts um, grumpy old manning uh, the Federation newscaster telling her that she knows nothing of, of history and the pain of loss and survival. Meanwhile, uh, Daj sees this, new car- this newscast being broadcast live and goes to see Picard. She pleads him for help. Somehow she knows Picard will help her, even if she's not sure why, she has this necklace which has two conjoining circles which will grab which grabs Picard's attention. Um role-playing like role-playing game style, he clicks on it, looks at it, hmm, interesting, gives back. He's unsure of Dodge, but he wants to help her. Um Picard has another dream. This time it's Data painting in his vineyard, and the dream of Data asks Picard to finish the painting. He wakes and he sees that the painting is actually hanging in his study. Um, Daj disappeared during the night, and Picard, you know, feeling the sense of the chase, um, goes to his archives at the Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco. It turns out that the painting is actually one of a set that Data gifted him 10, uh, 14 years previously. On the painting in the archives, um, the face of the of a woman is seen, and it's the woman Daj. The painting was titled Daughter. Um, in the streets of Paris, Daj communicates with her mother, who tells her to go back to Picard, the, um, the broadcast glitching. Clearly, um, Daj mentioned Ed Sheeran as well, 
and she enters a kind of trance and is able to, you know, hack into the system and locate Picard. She transports to San Francisco and they reunite. She thinks she has some kind of schizophrenia. Picard immediately believes that Dodge is, in her own way, Data's daughter, a highly advanced android who thinks and acts like she's human until the intellect and defense programming kicks in. Picard plans to take Dodge to the Dacem Institute, but um, she hears her attackers coming who literally transport in, and Dodge pulls out some superhuman CGI jumping ability and is able to fight them off. Her fight's to no avail, and a, pl and a phaser rifle explodes, killing her instantly, but not before revealing that her attackers are actually Romulans. Picard is knocked out at, by the explosion and awakens back in his chateau. Picard curses his retreating into his own self-pity and heads to Daystrom himself, where he meets Dr. Girati, who and asks if it's possible to make a sentient android out of flesh and bone. Girati tells him that this won't potentially be possible for another thousand years, but the section of Daystrom, which was oh. headed by Dr. Bruce Maddox... Time up. Alright, tell me when the stopwatch is going. Okay, okay. We power through. <laughs> okay, go. Um, Dr. Maddox, um, was he which was heading this, um, this part of uh, Fort... After the synthetic ban, they're not allowed to do any actual practical research, and everything has to be theoretical. Um, Maddox, I guess, dis you know, disappeared shortly after. Um, Girati pulls out uh, B4, who is another data-like robot from a ro from a Star Trek film I really don't want to have to watch for a second time in my life. Uh, Girati explains that they could have potentially reconstructed Data's code from a techno, a techno battle process called fractal neuronic coding, and they could have essentially derived all the data from a single positronic neuron. The same design of this idea is the same design of the two conjoined circles on Daj's necklace, which Picard still has. Girati believes that Maddox may have been able to salvage some part of data and use to finally complete his work using the woman in the painting as a model to base the physical design. There's one other thing, though. Um, the, the, due to how the design works, they could only be constructed in pairs, which means there's another one of these rope of these androids out there in deep space at something called the Romulan Reclamation Site. A very charming Romulan called Narek consults a scientist called Soji. Soji is the twin of Daj that we've been looking for, and the Reclamation Site is actually the wreckage of a Borg cube. Oh my god. Cliffhanger. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a minute and 42. There, with that. Good good powering through. I wasn't sure whether you were going to just do like five second kind of like boom, quick couple of sentence summary with it because like, a, lot, a lot of time is spent, but not a massive amount happens with this. It's, a, it's lot, a lot of build. A lot happens. Um, God, this is this is H. This is a Netflix style binge plot. Mm. My biggest problem with Picard and a good chunk of Discovery is that it really feels like it's designed for the Netflix HBO binge model 
where you don't just watch one episode of a TV show, you're watching part one of ten, and we're gonna we're gonna stretch it. We're gonna stretch it. It's gonna feel stretched, and it's deconstructed storytelling. I know we've I know we've referred to deconstructed storytelling on this show before, and it really kind of feels it. And especially here. And at times that can really help for greater depth of character. And other times it really feels like we're just kind of making time until the time in when we've scheduled for the big reveal to happen. Yeah. I I hit a point of dissatisfaction with a number of prestige uh shows around the time of Preacher and Man in the High Castle where I felt increasingly so many of those shows were a build-up to a finale that would then tease some stuff for the next season, and it would drag its yeah. feet slowly towards a plot, and it would do its best to keep things kind of vague and uncertain as it went. And like, I guess... Rewatching this, it looks very nice. It's very nicely shot. It definitely looks more prestige than, say, Discovery. But I, even at the end of the first episode, I I have to ask why. With it, I my my big problem, um, is that I know in the promotion. They were real, like, like they were really talking about how we're gonna see how Star Trek, how Starfleet has lost its way. Um, I guess because Patrick Stewart is just as pissed off about Trump and Brexit as we all are. Yeah, and I remember this a lot of people go complaining, rah, 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 Star Trek political. And the thing is, I never get any evidence of this. Like we get told that Starfleet has lost its way. We get told again and again how Picard has lost faith in what Starfleet represents and how Starfleet has pulled back in its ideas and what it stands for and its causes, but we never we never see it. I mean We're just told it. There's the whole not helping the Romulans. But like, you know, I feel like that's one part hmm. and we never really see it in practice. Um and the only real like one of the, out of the two, we've both watched this season, yeah. Before, and the one big Starfleet out of the two Starfleet officers we get in the show, one of whom will turn out to be a Romulan deep cover agent. So we don't, we never get, we never really see Picard's griping represented well. I don't feel we there's stuff later. There's like a few bits here and there, but we never get a big standout moment. It just feels like Picard is just old man yelling at cloud. Yeah. I think there's a want of making him prestige hero who is grizzled, you know, action hero -y at times. And I had a realization just before starting this, uh, watching the trailer for season three again, and it's like this is movie Picard, you know, this is old angry movie Picard, not old TV show Picard, really, because they felt like yeah. two very different entities. You know, 
I, I will happily watch Patrick Stewart, just, you know, Patrick Stewart on, mm. on screen because, you know, he's, you know, he's visibly older. Vocally, he sounds a lot older. Oh my God. But at the same time, you know, the guy's skills have not, the guy's, the guy's acting talents have never diminished. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I, um, I've seen. I'm, I'm pleased they didn't give him any actiony things to do because they do occasionally in, no. in the first two seasons of Picard. And every time it makes me nervous, not for Jean-Luc Picard, but for Patrick Stewart. It's one of those, oh no, mate, yeah. you need to be having a cup of tea. You need to be like chilling out a bit at this point, not running around pretending to be a hero because, I mean, that wasn't massively your deal before, but it doubly so now. Like, you know, I, I like the parts where we where Picard is given a mystery to solve. Mm. And, and he's working out. He's working out the clues. I just, I, I enjoy it, but at the same time, I'm thinking this is Logan. Yeah. This is this is Logan, Patrick Stewart, and we've we've seen this. Um, like there could be better ways to present this story. Yeah. Um, like Michael, Michael, you know, Michael Chabon is an you know an incredibly skilled novelist um he wrote the adventures of cavalier and clay um he wrote a really good sherlock holmes novella called the final solution which takes place during the second world war um i think he wrote the script for spider-man 2 um you know i just feel i I just feel that this the the story beats we've kind of seen before Hmm. with, with logan and it doesn't feel i don't know it, it doesn't feel like star trek in the ways it could be it just feels at this point it just feels like generic space action show with the guy from star trek yeah yeah there are a lot of very generic prestige drama beats especially with revisiting a thing so yeah he's not living his best life even if he's on a vineyard in France, in some kind of polycule with a few Romulans, and uh, and his dog, which is, who's called Number One, which um, he's, of he's, course, of he's course. a good dog. He, he's, yeah, he's a good, he's a good. Dog. He is. I I assume he's called Number One because he keeps humping things. <laughs> I, I'm just you know, I, I just like um, I wonder if number one has ever met Riker. So I, I can just imagine like the end of uh, Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. We named a dog number one. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Oh, and um, yeah, a couple of familiar faces for me here. The interviewer, um, uh, was it Meryn Dungay? Um, she's yeah. Uh, she's Francine in Alias. She was the normal life friend of Sidney Bristow in Alias, who, because they realized none of that was working out for them, uh, ditched her and then killed her and replaced her with basically someone who had been made up to look like Francine. And um, yeah, that was kind of fun getting her to get a bit more villainous. 
And of course, yeah, all the Brady who anyone who's listened to this from the start and heard the calibration episode will have heard me talk about Eternal Law, the show about lawyers who are also angels stuck on this earth. And um, and yeah, she's the kind of um, she's Mrs. Sheringham who looks after them in the office and evidently has her own kind of baggage to deal with. So, yeah, it was fun seeing her in this as uh, as part of so, whatever deal Picard's got going on in the vineyard. So the Romulan, the Romulan Nerek, who turns up very brief at the end, yeah. I thought was the guy who plays Spock in Discovery. Yeah. Because he has a very similar kind of face. So I'm like, Spock, is that you? He's, I don't know, he's like, if that guy was, um, like, a bit more of a D-bag kind of thing. Like, this guy, he feels a more like... Slimy, a bit slimy. Yeah, he's a bit slimy. He's probably aware of close-up magic and stuff, you know? This this guy probably negs. Yeah, definitely. Unlike yeah. Riker, who, who asked no, Riker doesn't neg. No, Riker is very respectful. Um, just... Like, in fact, yeah. Sorry, on my notes, I just have Romulan fuckboy because I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> Sadly, that's not going to be the title for this episode. Um, no. <laughs> just, uh, I, I feel, I feel bad. Talk, kind of. Sometimes I kind of feel bad when I have to talk negative about a show. Yeah, because it has there. There, it, it's not like with Enterprise when it, there's very clearly like no ideas and there's no gas in the tank because like Picard, I feel Picard is trying. Hmm. I I think the Prestige TV format just doesn't really work for Star Trek, and I feel it like Early Discovery. It's trying too much to be. Dark and it's trying too much to be Jeff Johns. Yeah, yeah. Um, by oh, we have lost our way. We have lost what the what we believe in, and never really showing what it is that we fundamentally believe in. Yeah, what you like? Oh, it's a bit shit. We should be better. We're not going to present any solutions. Um, because yeah, in theory, if it's all like this, aside from that Romulan spy, is is anything vastly improved in all of this? Or is it's like it I, a, a new quest about Data's mission and stuff that wasn't really part of his thing? And JL, that rogue maverick, who wasn't really that rogue or mavericky. You know, that's why Riker was brought on board. You know? I know, like, we get some stuff later on that, like, the, epi- like, the Federation doesn't do the kind of peacekeeping that it used to in, like, the parts of the space where, you know, there is less, I guess, law and order. Yeah. But again, you know, Starfleet's... Like, Starfleet's status as peacekeepers in the Alpha Quadrant always just feels as tenuous as what we need the the crew to do this week. Mm. We, We just never really... I don't feel we see... Much of the big statement as the show will progress to the point where when we get to the end, it never really feels earned about what Starfleet is doing now. 
or what Starfleet is not doing now to make us all go, ooh, Starfleet has lost its grander ideals. And do we need to keep having stuff? Does Star Trek need to keep having the same discussion of, ooh, have we lost our ideals? Because I feel you can have you can have Star Trek talk about and be in conflict with the ideals of the Federation. Yeah. It's just if you keep repeat you I think modern Star Trek sometimes falls into a loop of we have to keep repeating the you know, the the question about what our ideals stand for because that's just kind of how we are as a cultural zeitgeist that we're just all kind of questioning where what what is our society anymore and is it even worth it again it's exactly you you hit it on the head there star trek jeff johns you know every event we've lost our way we need to learn to do hope a bit better no we won't provide a solution and repeat and yeah it's there is some potential but it just feels i don't know unnecessary I think, right? The other Star Treks don't really have a weird elite group of ninja pop up for a fight early on. Mm. Like that, that always surprises me with with this episode. Like, oh, oh God, we're doing this. That felt far more into darkness than you know this timeline. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um. Okay, so. Like, I I don't want to be like if you know if this is what got Patrick Stewart to finally come back as Picard, I I can't fully hate on it, but I want to see what it was in pre-production that made Patrick Stewart want to sign back off. Aside from a check, because you know, man got paid and good for that. But man, man got paid. Like you know, people. People got paid to be in this, and great. People got yeah. paid to make this. That's great. Um, I, I just kind of, I, I just kind of want to see what it was beyond because clearly Patrick Stewart has been very kind of like, I don't want to be Picard again. That's mm. that's done. That's done. And it's been a good chunk of time since Nemesis. That, you know, whatever they offered him or whatever kind of meeting he had with the producers and the creatives to kind of want to come back was clearly something that impressed him. I just want to see what it was that impressed Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Okay. So. Because he's clearly not doing like a Christopher Lee and just take the money, say your lines, run to the bank. Yeah. So, on our list, I'm scrolling down. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Ow. Just, you know. <laughs> the good news is, it's scroll-worthy now, uh, rather than that our list is tiny. But, I, 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 my eyes went for Thor and to Caretaker. And, like, for Caretaker's pilot, it did some stuff. It introduced us to two people like, sure, it looked worse because it was from, you know, what, 1995. Yep. But it it was a whole story and 
it gave us for mission statement right away. Like, what's for mission statement with this? Is it just save Data's daughter or one of Data's? It it it, it gives us it. You know, the the caretaker gives us the characters. It gives us. It tries to set up what the is it Delta or Gamma Quadrant in Voyager. Delta. Delta Quadrant. Um, you know, it gives us some world building, it gives us an idea of, of what the show will be, and then doesn't really do much with the potential afterwards. Whereas Picard doesn't. We get, again, we, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, again, it's one of those we're told and we're not shown. Yeah. When, with Caretaker, you get characters interacting. Yeah. And I kind of, we see some of our cast. Uh, it'll be the next episode where we're introduced to more of them. But yeah, there's just not like like we get we don't you know we get Daj who gets killed off and we get Soji um and then we get Girati yeah and then we get Doctor Girati who you know is is the Tilly of this show. Because I, I, that just seems to be the kind of the thing we do in modern Star Trek, where we kind of have like the one, the one female character who's a bit kooky. Oh, Jurati is so like, much more annoying than than Tilly. We get, we get, we get Tilly, we get Jurati, and then we get like the nurse. Cha- we get Nurse Chapel in Strange New Worlds. Hmm. We we don't seem to have one in. Uh, lower decks, because they're all kind of insane in lower decks. Maybe it's Jennifer, J- Jennifer the Andorian girlfriend. Yeah, maybe. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So, worse than Caretaker? Is it better or worse than Broken Bow? Because <laughs> Broken Bow does. It's better. It's better. <laughs> It's it's better because at least I'm watching Patrick Stewart say stuff. Hmm. Okay. There's there's you know it it really at this point I think the difference between Broken Bow and um, Remembrance is which doggo do I like more? Yeah. Yeah. That's and while while um while Porthos is a good is a very good boy. Number one is a is is clearly an even better boy. Okay, so it's better than Broken Bow. Is it better or worse than an evil clown being in the Matrix in in the Thor? Oh, I'm I'm I'm. Cause that's wacky. Like that's some weird bullshit going on there. I I I think it's kind of worth it for like um the Thor is kind of worth it for like Janeway turning up at the end. And just utterly destroying evil clown, like without breaking a digital sweat. I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, I think I'd prefer yeah. bad in a wacky way than just yeah, a bit maudlin and and pointless feeling. Okay, okay, so that'd put it at our new thirty-five. <sighs> wow. Okay, and there will be some right ones. Like, there are some episodes which are right. There are at least a couple which might well be worse. I I, I, I haven't finished season two okay. of Picard. I'm, 
I might just I might just go straight to season three, and just kind of fill in the blanks with season two, um, along the way. I mean, if there's if there's a clip on YouTube of the last couple of scenes set back in the future, um, that probably sets you up nicely, and the rest of it can be ignored. It's just a worse first contact, like you know. We we got we got the you know we got the we got the TNG cast again. I've heard that it's good from like people who got to go to the premiere. Um, so we'll see. Um, yeah, I I don't feel good about having to you know finally doing Picard and just going. Yeah, I don't enjoy this. Yeah, I I knew it was going to be a rough one. So we've we've ripped the plaster off in the name of synergy. And uh, yeah, who knows? We'll see what season three brings. All right. So, on that note, where can they find you? So, uh, they can find me at faketales.com, which is my blog. I will be promoting the Kickstarter for my comic once I get um, the Kickstarter page for it uh, ready to launch. And, um, yeah, hopefully on Who Dares Rolls, where I've submitted a couple of text reviews, having missed the era of text reviewing. And reading your blog posts has got me going, I miss doing blog posts, making some words. So hopefully there'll be some there. What about yourself? Okay, well, you I've actually started branching out. You can find me on... My blog, which is M A Reed Lobato, that's R E I D L O B A T O dot WordPress dot com. There is a link in the show notes, or else a better be, or else um, your check's gonna bounce. Um, I am also now doing Doctor Who based text reviews uh, for Doctor Who, for Doctor Who. Um, it's you know, it's gonna be like the reviews of mostly the books, the, the various books and the various uh, big finish audio books because I'll be honest, I have a gigantic backlog of Doctor Who related tat and I need an excuse to to get to it all and I really should of there we go. And you can you will find that on the website timeandrelative.uk that's time and relative all on word dot uk i only have one review up there which is for the virgin fourth doctor book managra why yes that is an anagram of um anagram and yeah more reviews will be coming up you know when i have the energy to read and to read and consume vast amounts of doctor who and write my opinions on it in ways which aren't long form scrolls um you can still find me on twitter at at man miles Although, let's be honest, um, any week where we can still say that Twitter is a thing is either a good thing or a bad thing. As I said, you can find me on the Breakfast in the Ruins podcast for the one episode, The Dark, which hopefully should be out when I have, when this episode airs. And there we go. I am, I'm finally getting stuff out there because I remember the early episodes of, um, of this podcast where you're like, yep, you can find me on my website, you can find me doing these things, and I'm just like, 
I'm on Twitter and occasionally I say the word penis and that's funny. Yeah, I, I've been, I don't know, channeling a lot more things through my through my blog a bit more. Um, I'm on hiatus currently with playing with ourselves, my solo actual play podcast, and God knows with social media. So I've kind of walked it back a bit to anything relevant. It'll be on the blog. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I, would you like to promote your MySpace page? Oh, I, I keep thinking, Or maybe a Tumblr? Oh, so I, oh yeah, I'm Faked Tales on Tumblr. People keep following me and I've posted literally Ugh. nothing. Um, so God knows what that's about. And of course, we are, we have our own, uh, Twitter, which is Casual Trek Pod. At twit at casual track pod on Twitter, um, yeah, it's really hard, like it's on. We do have a Kofi. Um, send us send us money, and we will we will dance for your amusement. Not actually dance. Um, we will metaphorically dance using episodes of Star Trek. Yep. And um, and then there is our YouTube. Yes. Yeah, which is gradually getting everything from Casual Trek onto uh, onto YouTube for anyone that wants a video for whatever reason, uh, but not a podcast and is fine with a static image. So, yes, uh, there are those. And, Miles, what are we doing next time? Next time, we are finally talking about the most important character in the history of Star Trek. No, it's not Bill Shatner. It's, in fact, it's the guy who got more fan mail than Bill Shatner. We are finally talking about the one, the only, Mr. Spock himself. So, yeah, join us for some spectacular fun. Yeah. Spectacular I... antics. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm proud of that terrible pun. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess with all of that done, it just remains for us to remind you, go to a Starfleet, just not the Starfleet from Picard's era, the Starfleet from before and distantly in the future from that. So, live long and have a jelly baby. You've been listening to Casual Trek by Charlie Etheridge-Nunn and Miles Reed-Lobato. Music by Alfred Etheridge Nunn. Casual Trek's part of the Nerd and Tie Network. And if you want to support us monetarily, because you love what we do that much, you can now do that by going to Coffee and looking up Casual Trek. There's a link in the show notes.